really the funny thing is that this DC FACES, I can't remember exactly what that acronym stands for. It's at thisiscommonsense.org. Uh, the name of the script is Shh, Not Now. But this DC FACES group that the mayor, Mayor Bowser, set up, it's about renaming statues and schools and different things. Every time I look at it, it seems like it reads defaces, kind of like all the graffiti and vandalism to statues and so on and so on. And I wonder, did they mean to do that? That was Paul Jacob talking about his latest commentary at thisiscommonsense.org for Friday, September 4th, 2020. This is his podcast, This Week in Common Sense. My name is Timothy Verkula, and Paul and I are going to be talking about all five commentaries for the first week of September that have appeared on Paul's website. Paul's been writing daily commentary there since 1999. And as long as Facebook doesn't deplatform him, he posts on that social media platform too. Look for at This Is Common Sense. Okay, Paul, today's Common Sense was about politically correct renaming agenda in the nation's capital. Now what? What now? Well, in... In Washington, like a lot of places now, Washington, D.C., and we've talked about this before, they've painted Black Lives Matter on 16th Street, uh, very close to the White House. And there have also been protests. There have been some riots. There have been some destruction. Um, But Mayor Bowser, through all of this, has also been working on a different track. Uh, that involves not criminal justice, but racial justice um, is the term. And the idea is to get rid of monuments that are to people that had some role in slavery or something that's deemed racist. And, uh, and of course, in, in, there seem to be you know, some double standards sometimes in terms of publicly whether somebody's you know, transgressions a century or two centuries ago, rise to that level or not. Uh, for instance, if you became president, uh, uh, you know, oftentimes you get forgiven or, you know, maybe not forgiven. And uh, and I think there are people who want to keep monuments who kind of forgive presidents. And and of course, you know, I think anybody who looks at history has to recognize that slavery is part of human history, and it's just a horrible thing. It's why we should travel just as fast as we can the other direction to as much freedom as possible for everybody and to make it impossible for someone to hold you captive. Um, And that's truer here in the United States, although there's still people who are kidnapped. Uh, It's, you know, we we still have more slavery in the Middle East and in uh, Asia and parts of Asia and so on. And so, um, and and I'm not talking about the... uh, the CCP, the Communist Chinese Party, with their 1.4 billion slaves. I'm talking about more direct, uh, daily, uh, physical control at all times. But, you know, the whole history of slavery and racism and America's uh, experience with that is something that's worth remembering. It's worth learning about. I think this new move to let's change the name of everything is or let's, you know, let's kind of go through and politically judge every person and place and thing. 
is a big mistake. It's a it's a lot of energy put to things that I don't think matter a whole lot. And I think there is a way to do it. I you know I I think we talked months ago. I've never liked living in Prince William County, Virginia. I just don't I don't like princes. I don't like kings. I don't like uh, you know queens. I don't like royalty. And you know if if life were endless. I'd probably petition in the petition process that doesn't exist in my county, unfortunately. Uh, but someday I'd create it. You know, when I'm 97, I would somehow lobby it into existence and then work to put something on the ballot to change the name of our county. But in the end, it's, you know, that's not really the, the big problem in our lives, in our worlds, in our countries, our states, our cities. And it's getting a tremendous amount of attention um, and it's the sort of attention that is designed to separate people, to make all kinds of ridiculous judgments. And I think, you know, uh, it's, it, it is intended to divide, um, and it could be done in a different way. And I think a lot of people just, you know, would, would be more dismissive of it. Uh, Tim, I think you're more dismissive of it than I am. Um, but I, you know, because I, I certainly understand, uh, the feeling of, Hey, this, this doesn't represent my view. And I really think that we ought to be very, very careful about spending a lot of time and resources, um, trying to, you know, fashion how everybody in future generations is supposed to see everything. Uh, I don't think that's really necessarily the, the role of government to pick our heroes and build statues to them. I think it's stupid. Uh, it's kind of idolatry in a in a sense, and uh, and and not just in a religious sense is it harmful. I think it's harmful in a political sense. Um, you know, I, I I happen to really uh, have have read a lot and been very interested. You know, the American experiment is tremendous, um, and we're talking about slavery, and so there's the big the big crime, the big the thing that didn't get done in the revolution. Uh, that took a war and 800,000 people dead uh, and many more injured uh, and, you know, to, to rectify that. So I think the, you know, I, I've always kind of thought of the, the framers of the Constitution, people like Jefferson and Washington as tremendous people. I still do. But I sure do know that they're, that they're not perfect people that they were flawed people. Um, and you know what? That, you know, I might have met them if they'd been alive then and not liked them. I might have thought they were arrogant jerks or something. Who knows? That's not what we ought to spend any time revering. It wasn't that, boy, they, boy did they have personality. That's not what it's all about. All men are created equal. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words, so we salute Thomas Jefferson for writing those words. Why? Because those words are so darn important. Those words were, you know, now it's kind of like, hey, where is it? It should be here. We've all kind of signed on to it. But at that, and not in the, in the world and in, in reality, but in America, in our thoughts, hey, that's how everyone thinks, isn't it? But it wasn't how everyone thought then. And uh, it, anyway, it's a tremendous thing that happened. But it doesn't mean we have to hide history. It doesn't mean we have to build monuments to these people. I, I remember years ago, someone talking about the Constitution as a sacred document. 
And to me, I think maybe they were just kind of flubbing over the sacred, but a sacred document would mean that it was God-inspired. And I don't think the Constitution was God-inspired. It was men. And we have to we have to look at it that way. So I'm I'm sensitive to all of this because I think we do have a tendency to put people on pedestals and want to give short shrift to the real history. And the real history, I think, is freeing. It's illuminating. It 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 means that you know, we, we learn things that are important. You know, human nature hasn't changed that much. And, and I think if we know the real history uh, of colonial times and the revolution and, and onward, you know, we're helped, not hurt. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of your piece on uh, Friday. In, in, in fact, that's not my piece isn't really about. No, no. That, other than just to mention that for the first time, I think somebody came out and did finger let's do something with the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial. And of course, it may not be, these aren't all that they would be torn down or something. They might put a plaque up to explain slavery and so on. Although that seems kind of silly because people already know that, but put it up. I mean, you know, and if that's really what this is all about, it seems like we've all spent a lot more time on it than it really deserves. But it, it's about changing school names, and it's really about the power to kind of whipsaw around our society in some cultural revolution-esque way that I find a little bit disturbing. But that isn't what my piece is about either. What my piece is about is dishonesty and the way that our political system tends to work. And this case, this is a, a case of the Democrats doing it. I'm sure you could find cases of Republicans doing it. Uh, it seems to be thoroughly bipartisan. But Mayor Bowser put together this commission. Uh, DC FACES is the acronym, which you saw the opening. Uh, but she puts this together, this group, and they get together and decide what, what school names need to change, Woodrow Wilson, uh, any president who, who owns slaves at any point, you know, that sort of thing. And there was quite a few, I think it was 21 public buildings, a certain number of schools that were being changed, you know, uh, uh, parks being renamed, that sort of thing. Um, but she releases it. And of course, it gets some headlines and immediately after releasing it, the day after releasing it, the Washington Post, you know, contacts the mayor's office and the people who wrote the report and made the list and so on. And nobody will talk to them. And immediately there's backlash because, of course, they've mentioned, you know, the Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial as places that either need to, you know, have some sign or be removed or be renamed or whatever without any clarity whatsoever. So, you know, kind of badly put out there. But what caught my attention was the fact that the headline in the Washington Post, if you go online, it's a different headline. They do this to me all the time. It drives me crazy. I will read the, the, the story in my morning paper and it will have this headline that, that you know, usually if I remember it, it's because it made me mad. And, um, and this one is all about, you know, uh, what a time to do this. And of course, right off the bat, there's a Democratic strategist who says, this is a terrible time to be bringing this up. And then there's the former CEO of the DC Chamber of Commerce saying, 
you know, this should be brought up after the election. And of course, what smacks me in the face is here are all these people wringing their hands about the mayor doing something that is likely to be extremely unpopular. And their problem isn't with what she's doing, isn't with it being unpopular. Their problem is don't do it now. Hide it from the people. Don't let people close to the election know that this is really what you're thinking about and intending to do. Trick the voters, fool the voters, keep the voters disarmed by not telling them what you're really all about. And look, as I said, Democrats aren't the only one who do who, who would do that. But that's what's being done, and it's being done not just by politicians on a regular basis or this Democratic strategist who was unnamed, uh, or by the, you know, the woman who was part of the Chamber of Commerce. It's being done by the Washington Post. The way the story was written, it was, what an idiot, don't do this. Um, and of course, the story was written with the don't give Trump an opening because we know he's evil. I mean, isn't that a fact? Um, and, and so the whole tone of the piece was the Washington Post advising, I may be advising too strong a word, but spinning it to where the problem is that Bowser wasn't politically smart and didn't properly trick the voters about what she's all about and what Democrats are all about. That's, that's a, it's not a conspiracy. It's a bunch of people working the same way, not caring about the public, not believing that the public needs information to make the decision and hoping that they can give them the information where they'll make the right decision, hoping they'll read our editorial so that they, they'll know what we think is right. And I hope they'll choose that. No, none of that. We will give you the information that we think will make you choose the way we want you to choose. And if anyone's going to give you information other than that, what on earth are they thinking of? Now, this is a big issue right now uh, for a number of stories because, you know, Don Lemon, this last week or so, uh, finally came out against the riots. He says this has gone too far. And the day, the day or two later, Joe Biden gave a big speech about how bad the riots were. So it, it, it seems across the Trump the, riots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems across the board that they're trying, that the, the media is just sort of a, another wing of the Democratic Party. And it seems really obvious. Doesn't it seem weird that the Washington Post is not even hiding it and it's just sort of acting as the newsletter of the Democratic Party at this point? Because if you really were a conspiratorial mindset or you're really trying to effectively uh, pull one over, you wouldn't say that in public. We said, and I have some people I care about who are in the media who did not like the way I said it, in fact. But we said on Election Day, the day after Election Day, actually, in 2016, that the media lost the election. And we said that because they were so over the top. And, and maybe I'm just self-projecting, but 
I I was not a never Trumper. Uh, I didn't vote for Trump. Uh, I voted Libertarian. Um, but I wasn't a never Trumper. But I certainly was not excited about Trump. And I did not see Trump as an outsider. And I think I've probably mentioned in various uh, podcasts, uh, my father who voted for Trump in the primary in Arkansas, I think was the only person in our family who uh, voted for Trump. Uh, and then he passed away before the general election and would always say, you know, he wasn't, he didn't like everything Trump did. Certainly my father did not have the same demeanor that Donald Trump has by a long shot, maybe almost mirror opposites. But he said, he's the only guy that will do something different. He's the only guy that's not the same as everyone else and just the status quo swirling around the drain waiting to go down. Um, and the Washington Post, you know, so, so my view was just sick that we've got Hillary Clinton could be president. She's the Democratic nominee. She's likely to be president. And we've got Donald Trump, who I'm scared of. I have a, had a friend who would call me and during, the, during the, the election campaign in 2016, and his opening line was always, are you still scared? And, uh, and I, would, I would always say, yes, I am. To, to make a long story short, throughout the whole campaign, I'm reading the Washington Post, but I'm reading it as someone who's not happy that Donald Trump is running for president. And every morning, I find myself defending Donald Trump because I'm reading the Washington Post and hearing the ridiculous things they're saying and the way they're spinning things. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm certainly not sympathetic to Trump, but my goodness, this is way over the top. And particularly, it was over the top enough that I started to wonder, maybe my dad was right. And, and he wasn't sure Trump would, would, you know, was the outsider, but there was a chance, he thought. Um, and maybe other friends I have who see him as the outsider are not all wet. Um, and, and you'll remember at Common Sense, this is commonsense.org, we used on a couple different uh, uh, commentaries, we used that picture of Trump and Melania and Hillary and Bill Clinton. I believe it was at uh, Chelsea's wedding or something, one of somebody's wedding, but the four of them together to just show they're all part of the same crowd. Well, maybe, maybe not. But What's interesting is the media, in essence, by going way over the top in 2016, I think helped Trump. They helped cement him as the outsider. And I think the same thing is happening now. And I think this, the whole, there aren't really riots. They're mostly peaceful. Trump is, you know, look at Portland. Trump's federal people. And, and look, I'm concerned about criminal justice reform. And, I, and federal police forces have done things that are outrageous and local police have. It's not okay to shoot people. That's not the first resort. But at the same time, it's not okay to tear down and burn buildings and stuff. And, and so you see what happens. And to the average person, it's a big problem that Trump put federal people in Portland. He moves the federal people out. And what happens in Portland? Well, it, it seems to get worse, not better, worse. There's somebody dead. There's now, now the person who shot the somebody is dead. Of course, he was killed in Washington State. But we watch the television, we read our newspaper, and 
if it doesn't make sense, you know, we haven't been brainwashed for very long. I don't think, I don't think it's, it's set in very deep. And I think the public can see you didn't really, the Democrats didn't, the media didn't, and increasingly the kind of the Republican joke, which I've used myself of, you know, the, the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself. Um, but we see them treating riots as not so big a deal and and having a certain narrative and then all of a sudden it seemed like and you read it in some of the stories that oh the polling's tightening and they think uh oh maybe we had the wrong view and then all of a sudden they're demanding more things be done to quell the rioting and they're most important of all blaming the rioting on donald trump and on his leadership or lack thereof and on his demeanor and i think that's probably the best the best shots you can take at him because I, I don't I don't like his demeanor for the most part. But of course, if you're looking for an outsider who will fight and take all the crap that's going to be through all the flack that's going to be shot at him from the powers in Washington, well, then maybe Trump is your guy. And that's what a lot of folks have have thought all along. And it's it's why I think when people attack the Trump people as somehow you know, you don't you don't care about morality or you don't care about, um, you know, civility and so on. These are very civil people. These are very moral people. The people I know who like Donald Trump, they are OK with a bully getting into the ring in Washington and beating the crap out of the people who've been in Washington. And I'm not endorsing Donald Trump, you know, as, hey, that's what we need is someone who beats the crap out of. Uh, the folks in Washington, but we do need somebody to beat the crap figuratively of uh, out of the folks in Washington and to change things. So that's uh, the the media is on the other side. Trump has succeeded in being able to to make the media his named official opponent, and I think that that is disastrous for the media long term. And I think short term, it helps Donald Trump. I understand why normal people who, let's say, fundamentalist Christians, uh, oh, just 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 the old the old rednecks, whatever you want to say, with normal Americans, you know, flyover country people, why they don't mind uh, Trump being mean and nasty, and not just simply because he's an outsider, but because he'd be mean and nasty to people who've treated them badly for a long time. And uh, he's sort of on their side, in a sense. And being nice hasn't helped an American who wanted, let's say, to limit government and not go, go into huge deficit spending. It hasn't helped them. Of course, it hasn't helped them to vote for Trump either. <laughs> right. I mean, so... when, you, when you said deficit spending, I was thinking, well... I hadn't gotten much help from Donald either. So I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what normal people make of that because I don't think people are thinking rationally about those things anymore. I think we're so far beyond rationality on the question of is this, is the government in good order? You know, what is the state of the union? Well, I think the state of the union is actually quite bad. You know, every year the president has a state of the union address and he says the state of the union is sound. Uh, how long has they been saying that? I don't know if I've ever heard anything different. Even when Trump gave his rather radically dark speech, he didn't come out and say the State of the Union was just, you know, I think the State of the Union is actually terrible. I, I would say that it's in so many ways, but mainly, and I know it's kind of weird, but mainly because 
no level of government has a handle on debt and spending. And, uh, and that's a real problem. It is a real problem. We, we, uh, well, it's uh, it's interesting because, and and maybe it leads us to our our next commentary, which is which you wouldn't necessarily think right off, but defying China for now. And the reason I mentioned this as a segue is that you know there's always the 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 decoupling of our economy with China, which uh, could come. Uh, in many ways, I want it to come, at least the threat of it, to back China off uh, and to not continue to facilitate uh, what what China's doing, you know, all over. I read something this week about how they're doing different things in Bhutan. And uh, for those who don't know it, Bhutan is kind of on the edge of the Himalayas and a uh, very tiny country. And I know about Bhutan. I don't really know anything about it, but I know it exists because maybe 30, 40 years ago, I was writing some story and uh, and I needed a country, a throwaway country that nobody had heard of, and I picked Bhutan. But anyway, uh, they are a real country because China is in, in locked in some uh, devious effort to try to undermine their their borders and so on. I mean, it's uh, there's always something going on in the world in which China's playing a bad role. But a lot of times people talk about the money that China has lent the United States. Um, and I think a lot of times it's overstated in terms of the just the sheer amount and, and uh, you know, as if somehow we're completely beholden to them now. But there is also the fact that, and, and to be honest, I'm not an a economist. I don't understand all the monetary theory and practice. Uh, but uh, I saw an article today where China was threatening to basically, you know, do a new currency. And they've been doing this, I think, for years, but also to, to take things out of uh, dollar holdings if, you know, things are going to come to a head with the United States. And frankly, um, you know, it seems like we have been on stupid autopilot for a long time when it comes to fiscal matters. And anybody who has lived for a while on their own knows that fiscal matters are really important. <laughs> and if you screw up, you can screw up all kinds of things. But if you don't screw up fiscal matters, you're in a lot better shape than if you do everything wonderfully, but you screw up fiscal matters. That's just my personal view. Feel free in the comments to disagree with me. I'm sure there'll be no comments. Anyway, uh, this this is you know we're 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 in a world that plays for keeps and we've been playing on hey we can just do anything for anybody no program ever has to work out um, and and you know we would argue with some of the philosophy that government can do all these things for people but it does seem like if you're going to spend trillions and trillions of dollars over decades claiming to help people you ought to have to show you help somebody at some point somewhere once twice maybe um and and so it, it does seem like that the american government has become a laughing stock in its own country and you know there's some powerful forces out there in the world and we're policing the entire world we're at home we have a dysfunctional republic 
the representative system that we have is not working. And, um, and we, we're all over the world and there are, you know, there are competitors out there. Um, I, I am, I'm, I'm concerned not only about the United States of America, but the whole world, because the U S can be a force has been a force for good. And, um, we're, we're, we seem to be, you know, stumbling around our own country with our shoelaces tied together um, on purpose, I think, um, because, you know, so much of this, and especially we we're just talking about, you know, the, the racial division, the criminal justice component of that, uh, which is a huge component. Um, but all of that, the American people are pretty doggone united on reforming criminal justice, on dealing with race issues uh, where they present themselves. And oftentimes these issues are much bigger than just race. Uh, there are plenty of police brutality incidents where it's a white policeman beating up a white guy. Um, so, you know, it, it isn't all about race, but, but anyway, the, the public's ready to tackle it all. It's been our politicians who have not tackled it, both Republican and Democrat. And that's why it is right for Republicans um, to point out that these cities are Democrat-run cities. These police forces are hired by Democrats. These prosecutors are Democrat prosecutors. In fact, one of the used to be a prosecutor is running for vice president, Kamala Harris. So, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it is right to point out what is being done that is outrageous. Um, but anyway, they, they've tried to tear it apart by not fixing the problem, as you and I have discussed oftentimes, by allowing anarchy to go on. And that's the other side of this. Not only have they allowed police anarchy, in a sense, but they are now allowing other anarchy and don't stop until they see that maybe the polling doesn't look so good on it. Um, but that's... Uh, those are two sides of a really, really rotten coin. Um, and that doesn't have anything to do with China per se, but um, it does have to do with us having control over our government because these festering issues are because we don't have control. If we did, it's not a matter of educating the public. It's a matter of giving the public the ability to force <clears throat> the right action. And speaking of that, again, it leads us to uh, defying China for now. In this script, I'm, I'm talking about Google, Twitter, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, tech companies. You mentioned Yahoo, too, also. Oh, yes, I did. That's right. Uh, well, in fact, uh, I mentioned Yahoo uh, because they are doing good things now, uh, but years ago, uh, uh, have been accused of, and it appears that they did, help give China information to arrest two dissidents who were using their their uh, email system and so on. And uh, U.S. companies, U.S.-based companies, or I don't care if they're based on, on Mars, companies that are making money off of me and you and other folks in America, we ought to get together and try to hold them accountable to behave decently, to not help China build a surveillance state, to not help the United States of America build a surveillance state, to not help anybody do that, to not be 
the hired guns for tyrants. I think we have to say to Google and Facebook and, and Yahoo and Twitter and every tech company and every non-tech company, if you're in the NBA, if you want our business, you can't use slave labor. You can't be a toady for the Chinazis and help them build a totalitarian society. That is not, that's not going to fly. And, and it looks like with this changeover in Hong Kong that all of those aforementioned companies have pulled back, have taken their information, their data off of servers in Hong Kong and moved everything to where the Chinese Nazis, the Chinese government cannot get it. And that is really good and really important. But we have to do more. The history of these companies is checkered. And we cannot allow people to get rich off of selling products and services to us who then turn around and help people tyrannize us or tyrannize somebody that speaks a different language on the other side of the world. So I think that uh, I think this is a great step, but it's something that we as Americans and gosh, I wish our media would help us more. Maybe they will uh, in, in the future. I think there's more attention on this than there was a year or two or three or four ago. But we we have to we have to get in the game. We have to have some leverage. We've got dollars. And I'm convinced that uh, I want to get us more leverage with our votes, but I think we may be able to get more leverage with our dollars, but we have to start, we have to start having the commitment to do that. Regarding the big companies like Google and so forth, uh, they're kind of the biggest threats to us here too, I think, especially how they're trying to rig the current election, the coming election. They are really are concertedly taking out pro-Trump people off of their platforms. I, I'm I'm really dubious about de dealing with these companies anymore. I mean, I don't. This week, I stopped regularly posting to Facebook. I, I've been very, very active on Facebook for ten years, and I just stopped. I'm on Gab, and I'm regular on Gab, and I post occasionally to Facebook. And I'm gonna pu I'm pulling back. Uh, and I I really suggest people. I think everybody needs a platform that's not Facebook or not Twitter or one of those things because at any time anyone who has an opinion that's against the against what the media wants with the they're going to take you out they can yes. take you out at any yes. time. So you should have well, a backup. I, you should have a backup at least. You know, I know how some people especially on the on the conservative side have always been concerned about somehow our government allowing international law the UN to come in and dictate to us um, but one of the most outrageous examples of that, and we talked about it, this is commonsense.org, uh, in, in a script earlier this year was YouTube's CEO or chief financial officer one, uh, I'm not sure which one it was said that basically any medical advice or discussion or information that, that was outside the lines of the World Health Organization, which is, I think Donald Trump thinks, I think he's right, is in bed with, with Xi Jinping and the Chinazis in Beijing. 
uh, and is and look, any UN organization, any organization, but here is a UN organization in disrepute, and YouTube's head honcho says we're gonna we're gonna take anything and censor it if it doesn't follow what who the World Health Organization is advocating. I mean, that is outrageous. And that's a level of censorship that hits you and me and the average person. That's a level of censorship. And I call it censorship. It's, they, they got a right to do what they want. But as, as I heard someone mention on, on uh, a program today, they have a right because Congress carved out a special you know, exemption for them. So they are kind of a creature of Congress in a sense. And, and anyway, it's censorship in the sense that it has the threat, at least, of severely diminishing the kind of debate that we have in this country about important topics. And when we're talking about a coronavirus that has killed you know, almost 200,000 people and could be here for a long time, we want that, we want that debate. We don't want some government from on high telling us, you know, no one can say anything except inside these little lines that some international agency told us we could, you know, we could step in, we could talk in. Um, that's the response of, of communist China. That's the response they had to the coronavirus. And, um, and again, it's not government, but it's, it's private monopoly-like government-created uh, private companies, and it's it's uh, it's scary. And again, I'm I'm not calling for the government to shut them down. Um, I'm I'm not knowledgeable enough or uh, how I would tweak, you know, whatever law you know Congress put together to give them, you know, their their little exemption on some of these antitrust and other other uh, business issues. But we as consumers have some say so. And we can, we can move away from um, YouTube. And I'm, I use YouTube a lot, I'm on Facebook a lot. I, I've gotta move away from it. Um, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you never post anything on, on Facebook or you don't use something that's on YouTube if you think it's valuable to use, but it does mean we've gotta start developing an alternative so that we can make that move. And um, and if nothing else, so that we can force their hand and make them treat us like they ought to treat people they want as customers. Uh, getting them to do the right thing is difficult, uh, but uh, your Tuesday piece was about uh, somebody actually doing the right thing, uh, which it, uh, that's it's such an odd thing to uh, write about. It is, especially especially for us, right? Uh, but. Um, you know, it, it, we, I got such great feedback on it. Oh, did you? Uh, yes, it got a lot of good feedback. Um, and really, it was all about, you know, the, in, in Georgia, they had these kids that had been trafficked, sex trafficked, and so on. And the, you know, local, federal uh, law enforcement, they, they tracked them, they got them, they you know, rescued the kids, they arrested the people. Um, a horrible crime, but a wonderful police governmental response. It's why we have government. It's not that you couldn't hire, if you're rich, some 
you know, person, secret agent to, you know, hunt down and, and find your kid. But most of us don't have those kind of resources. We've got to pull together and protect ourselves. And what more horrific thing than a child being taken in sex traffic. And, and thank goodness that, you know, we have a government that can do that. That's something government should do. We all agree and um, and it feels good to see it happen and and to appreciate it. Um, and it seems to me that that uh, and this is something Tim, you're always good at, is uh, is pointing out that you know when when government does sixty seven thousand things, including about sixty six thousand nine hundred ninety nine that they shouldn't be doing the one thing they should be doing tends to suffer or the 17 things or whatever. Um, and it's just, it's true. It, we all see it. I mean, I, you know, everyone says they can multitask, but most of us are not very good jugglers and, and government ought to be doing that, which we cannot do for ourselves. That's a principle. It's not a, it's not a political principle so much. It's just a common sense principle. And, and, you know, you see so much of, I think the response to the pandemic has been, you know, government rushing to send people money and so on when it was, wait a second. I mean, my wife and I both got a check for $1,200. Um, why? Was that supposed to help the pandemic? I mean, it was nice. I, I wish you'd send it all back. I mean, come on. It, it, it's silly. So... I, I think uh, I think um, we have a a government that spends so much because we have been lazy and and weak about saying you know what people are going to have to you know they're going to have to do do for themselves here they're going to you know there there's some problems that somebody else other than the government has to deal with churches, civics groups, uh, and so on. I noticed that uh, there's a certain similarity, I guess, at the background there for the next one, which I guess is Wednesdays, uh, which, which it's called uh, Bathtub Fails, because once again, we're here about... Oh, you skipped the... one. What? You skipped one. Did I? You skipped... Well, you apparently you left California. The The title to that, Tim, was leave California but you were so you were so far ahead that you just left California oh wow that I thought was, that was okay that was the next one is um, it okay but yeah, I, I went, went right by it September 2nd you're right well, but you know what we're just gonna this is this shows just a tremendous ability to pivot and go with the flow oh, we're nothing we if not pivot yeah that's right that's right uh bathtub fails which was actually Thursdays but it's also about the coronavirus, about the pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. I invented a new word. Yeah. Uh, well, especially because the, at the end of this piece, I point out that pandemic and panic, you know, our panic is contained in the word pandemic. So I really should pronounce it correctly, I think. But but anyway, uh, this is really about uh, Tim Harford, who uh you know, wrote a piece in the Daily Mail, and what he said basically was, you're more likely to hurt yourself 
in the bathtub, if you take baths throughout a year period, then you are to die from the coronavirus. Uh, and maybe it was that you would die in the bathtub because it's, it, it would shock people. Um, we used to deal with weird statistics like this when, in like high school and college debate, uh, but uh, it would shock people how many people are hurt or die in accidents in, the, in and around the bathtub. Um, but it's, it's not the sort of thing to where we've outlawed bathtubs. And it's not the sort of thing to where we have shut down society to make sure that there's no bathtubs anyway, anywhere and to make sure that nobody stumbles upon a bathtub. And the point he was basically making is there are all kinds of risks. We have to assess those risks and we have to also live our lives. I mean, you have the risk every time you get in a car that you could be killed in a car accident. Um, and that's, it's not a infinitesimal risk, but it's small enough that almost everyone in our society has decided they're going to get in a car anyway. Um, and so the, the, the implication of his piece is maybe we ought not to shut down society. Um, and of course, for people who believe in freedom, we don't even have to go to this sort of, uh, do we shut down society or do we not shut down society? We could actually say to society as, as government, here is what we believe we know about this. And one of the things is we ought to admit what we don't know. And it always seems to me that like if, if government had perfect knowledge, I for one would still be against them dictating how the rest of us live. But when you don't have perfect knowledge, when you don't really know whether a mask is a terrible thing to wear or it's a thing that should be mandatory because it's so wonderful, when you don't know how a virus is being spread, when you don't know all kinds of things about a threat dictating by law and by police enforcement that somehow, you know, you have to do this and that, but not that, you can't try this. I mean, it's a, it's a slavery of sorts and it's a control that's not helpful. Um, and, and part of the reason I think it's not helpful, like on the, the whole shutdown, I think if I were governor of a state, I would have said, and it would have made some difference depending on how much, you know, uh, virus was out there and what the threat was. But I, I would have asked people to do the right thing. Um, and here's what I think that is. And it would have been open your business when you think you can open it in a way that's safe. And I think that alone, instead of shutting it down, would have had thousands of business people thinking through what needs to be done. And one or two or eight or 20 of them would have thought of things that nobody else would have thought of. And they might have publicized it. And that might have changed things. Um, we want all of society involved in thinking about how we solve problems. We don't want everyone to be like a little 
you know, a little robot, and and everything's decided in Washington or in the state capitol or at City Hall. We want people using their thinking caps, and that means freedom. We we also don't want to tell people that your business means nothing. And so the fact that you are young and have almost no chance, you have no comorbidities um, or, you know, uh, other uh, illnesses that would, <laughs> could become a comorbidity. Um, and, and, you know, you, but, but you have to like sit in place and not open your business. And at the same time, we have no right to tell people who, do have um, compromised situations that you have to do something to go out in society. Let the people who are compromised take the precautions, can always do things to help. Uh, let the people who want to open their business or to do basic things that you should be able to do in a free society, do them. Freedom would be the best way to allow people to make millions, billions of individual decisions about what risks they're willing to take and what risks they're not willing to take and to look for their own ways to make their lives as normal as possible under the circumstances, knowing in sort of a wisdom of crowds that people are gonna think of things that can be used and replicated all over the country, maybe all over the world, again, Communicating respect for the people and freedom empowers a lot of brains to be thinking about how to deal with this crisis instead of all of us waiting for the CDC to tell us. And, and it makes some sense that, well, look, the CDC, Paul, I don't, I'm not a doctor. I don't know these things. I'm not an epidemiologist or whatever. Come on, we got to have the experts. Except the problem is, there's a lot of experts and they don't all agree. And the ones who are gonna be on TV telling us stuff are the experts that the politicians chose. And if, and if, uh, and, and look, some of those politicians, maybe it was the expert chosen by Donald Trump. Maybe it was the expert chosen by Nancy Pelosi. Should those two experts get together and, and tell us all what to do? I mean, I don't think we want our politicians deciding all of our medical issues. But in this coronavirus, that's kind of the way that, that things have transpired. Um, we need that. Look, we're, we're a free people. We're as educated almost as anybody anywhere in the world. Um, we're smart people. It's like when we have these disasters, floods or different things, and you know the National Guard's going in, but they never call you know, like all these people in surrounding say, come help. And I remember with Katrina, you had so many people go down to New Orleans to help because they felt like the help wasn't coming. But we are very capable people. And like, like people everywhere, the more it is a partnership. Um, I, I'm not, missed, you know, I, I'm pretty darn skeptical of government. I don't think it's impossible for there to be some respect for our government. And for, for that to happen, I think there's got to be some respect from the government for us because we're the boss. And so, you know, I, I think that is possible. And you get to a pandemic um, 
And you kind of see the need for that in a, in a war. Um, you know, you kind of expect the, the military type uh, command and control. But in something like this, um, it seems to me that that we, we continually do not expect the public to be engaged. We are the government in theory and in our civics class, but the government never really expects the public to be connected in any way. We're told what to do. We do what they tell us. That's, that's our role. And that's, that's not helpful. That's not a good, it's not a good um, cohesive functional society that, that handles things like this very well. Well, that was uh, Thursday, and I skipped right over Wednesday, which you noted. Do you want to deal with Wednesdays? Uh, I, I think if we don't deal with it, I, I could just go hire an attorney and sue you okay. for having over. You skipped over it, and that just ruined everything. No. Uh, yeah, let's uh, leave California. I, and I, I, I'm sure there was a lot of laughter out in out in. in uh, in the online video watching world uh, that you had left California. Uh, oh, the, okay. the title of it was, was leave California. And this is about Uber and Lyft and, and the gig economy and California's assembly bill five, which has been in court on all kinds of things. Uh, assembly bill five basically tries to make everybody have to be an employee. If you're a freelancer, you can only do so much freelancing with a company before, you know, they have to make you an employee. So for someone like me who, you know, works with a number of freelancers and, and always have, um, you know, you would you basically if you worked with a freelancer who happened to live in California, you'd have to you'd have to kind of say, are you going to move or or because I don't want to violate the law. And you're not you know, the job you're doing is a part-time thing and almost every freelancer I know um, is not just working for me. So, you know, they're, they've got a number of different things. It'd be like acting like every customer for a, a cleaners needs to bring in enough business that that cleaner could live, you know, and, and raise a family of four. Well, I just don't have that much cleaning. I'm sorry. Um, and I don't have that much, editorial work or different, you know, or, or petition work or whatever it is to be able to, you know, allow people to have big families and, and retire with a pension. And so um, everyone I know who is an independent contractor hates AB5 uh, and Lyft and Uber have been in court recently. Something said, look, they have to abide by it. A court, a new court decision came in and said, Nope, for now, they can continue without abiding by it. But that's just a it's a stay. Uh, it's it's temporary. And at some point, the court's either going to uphold AB5 or not uh, in regard to them. There are 67. I don't know the exact number, but there are a lot of other litigation, other lawsuits by different people who think that this is simply the government telling them they can no longer make money in a way that should be perfectly legal. And, you know, what I think is pretty obviously behind it is that the gig economy and is, is not 
what the Democrats like. They like unions and they like, uh, you know, they like, they seem to like big business um, where you can pay big benefits, although that's, that seems to be a thing of the past. So I, what I, what I think is most interesting, and, and basically I'm saying leave California to Uber and Lyft, that if the courts come down and say you have to abide by AB5 and you have to completely change your business model, don't try to you know, do it halfway. Uh, leave and let the people of California who have been getting cheaper, better trips. I mean, I, I, have, I don't think I've ever done Lyft. Maybe I have, but uh, I've done Uber a number of times. And, and I'm one of these people, yeah, I'm, I'm older, I guess, mentally or something, but uh, it took a while before I used Uber, you know, it just seemed like I knew how to hail a cab, you know, and this was, I had to do something with my phone, I had to master technology, but once you use Uber, and I have a very good rating, I think I'm a five, uh, but uh, once you use it, you've got, you know, it's, it's so easy, and I've had nothing but good experiences, and I've had a, a plenty of them. And, you know, one of the funny things is it's this idea that these people driving for Uber can't, you know, they're starving um, because they can't make enough money um, and they don't get benefits and all those different things. Well, they have so they drive some nice cars and I'm not saying that they're rich because they, they're working and they're working usually more than just the Uber job. Uh, so they're they're, you know, they're hustling. Um, and, and they've got two jobs and they're, they're focused. They seem like awfully good people. They're well-dressed, well-maintained cars, nice cars. And you talk to them and they're positive and they're thinking about the world as it is and how they can make their way in it. Um, when, when I hear people talk about them as if they're poor, suffering, oppressed folks, I just, I'd like to just make them sit in the car with me for one of those rides. Um, because I just don't, I mean, you have to have never been on an Uber to think that that's really, that this is some oppressive system. It's beyond silly. Thank you for stopping in to listen to This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. Paul Jacob writes a column five days a week at thisiscommonsense.org. This podcast can be found on Stitcher, Apple, Google, and Pocket Cast, and uh, probably quite a few other podcatchers and on SoundCloud, where it is hosted.